Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's innovative hidden screen folds away when closed, keeping it clean while bringing in a ton more sun. Choose 0% financing for 72 months or a free upgrade to the hidden screen on our 250 series. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Mike Spalding, before you leave, I have two comments about your newscast. Just to want you to know that I was, I was listening. All right. Okay, all right. First of all. It is the most profound comment I have heard in a long time, including in your newscast, where you have the quote from quotation of the guy who's saying, don't use a chainsaw if you don't know how to use it. Yes, <laughs> not for amateurs. <laughs> which, which is the, the best advice I, I have heard. If you do not know how to use a chainsaw, don't go out there hacking at limbs because, you know, just bad things can happen. I, I thought, man, you, you, just, you, uh, you cannot argue with that. That's That might be a Wagner rule of life. I think I might, you know, morph into that. We've got all sorts of them and maybe we'll make that rule number like 14 don't use a chainsaw if you don't know how to use it okay so that's that's a good thing secondly i have a beef you you missed what many people around here will think is the biggest story of the day and you didn't have it in your newscast what was it what was it okay well you you talked about you know craig council you know winning you Mm -hmm. know 564 games and stuff monday night when the Brewers are back in town against the St. Louis Cardinals, the Brewers have announced that they are going to have a special deal, $5.64 Miller Lite. On Monday, June 20th, 16-ounce Miller Lite and Coors Light beers, drafts, and cans will be available for $5.64 through the fifth inning in celebration of this deal. And it's available at all concession locations in American Family Field that sell Miller Light and Coors Light. You know how sometimes the the, the skies open up, Jeff, and the sun just happens to shine on you? <laughs> right. And, no fault of your own? I'm going to the game on Monday. I am as well. I'll, I'll I, see you there for five dollars and four cent beers. Five dollar and six. <laughs> now it does. Now I, I have to admit this is one of these comments that again makes me feel old because I I just I can remember. I can remember back in the day. I mean, I can remember when beers were fifty cents there. I, I can remember when beers at Summerfest were fifty cents a long time ago. But yes, it, it does say something that we're we're all jazzed about five dollar and sixty four cent beer. But but it, it's great. So five dollar and sixty four cents. See, now I have just made your day, haven't I? Yeah, no, you have absolutely. It's going to lead my next newscast. Oh, there, Not you even just to mention. <laughs> there, there, there you go. I'm, I'm just trying to help. So those are two great things. I mean, see that this is it. Five dollar and sixty four cent beer through the fifth inning on Monday night, Miller Lite and Coors Light, and don't use a chainsaw if you don't know what you're doing. Huh. There you go. This is why you should be listening to WTMJ News every half hour. It's why you should be listening to The Wagner Show every day from noon until three. All right. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on today's program. We, we kind of call it stir the pot, which will, I, I think, maybe rile you up or make you happy or, or whatever. But I want to I want to start with what I think is my favorite feel-good story of of the day. And I, 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 there's a, a bigger point behind it. Uh, maybe you have seen this video. It's gone viral. If you haven't, I, I've got a link to it. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 and, and seriously, if you only watch one video today, if you only watch one video all week, this is the video 
to watch. Let me th- describe this. This is it's a high school baseball game, Virginia State quarterfinal baseball game that's being played last week. So it's teams that are, you know, trying to advance to the state finals and things like that. Tenth inning of of the game. So it's the bottom of the tenth inning. The game is tied like six to six and bases are loaded. So the, the video shows the guy at bat and you can see he hits a single into right field. All right, so the game is going to be over. The guy on third base is going to score, and that team is going to win seven to six. Okay, you might say, Jeff, well, what, what's remarkable uh, uh, about this? Well, what happens is, and it's just, it, it's kind of like the little things. Okay, so the batter hits the ball into the outfield, and you can see the runner, you know, as soon as the hit goes into the outfield, the kid who is the catcher, on, on the team, which is going to be the losing, you know, that's going to be the losing team. So his team's ended. The catcher's, the kid's name is Eric Fila. And as soon as the, the ball leaves the, the hitter's bat, as soon as it goes, you know, you can tell it's going to be a hit, so you can tell the game is over. The catcher takes off his mask, turns around, and shakes the umpire's hand. Just extends his hand, and it's, this isn't—it's like not arrogance. It's not, oh, you know, you messed this over. No, you—you you can just see as the winning run is coming across. There's not a play. The game is over. The kid's first reaction is to stand up, turn around, and shake the umpire's hand. And he says something to him. It's kind of like, well, thanks for a good game, or thanks for the job you did, or whatever. It's this simple act of of sportsmanship. Well, this 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 film clip, the one that, again, I've got up on my Twitter account, um, it, it was posted the other day by the, the guy that does the PA announcing for, for the team. So they kind of just put this up here. It's now, um, what's happened is it's gone viral. Over a million views with people just calling in and reacting, talking about the class and the respect that that this this kid the catcher showed at what really is the team's worst moment. I mean, you know, your your team has just lost. Its season is over. The kid is a, as a matter of fact, he's a senior. So his high school career has ended on this play, and his first reaction is to take off his mask, turn around immediately, and shake the umpire's hand for you know calling a a good game. And so this, if you haven't seen it, it's getting all this praise. And the, the young man, he's like. I, I, he did an interview with the Washington Post that I'm looking at, and that's the story I have a link to. And the, the, the kid is saying, the young man is saying, this is just nuts. I mean, he said, he said, it's something, you know, so simple. It's standard in my eyes, standard in my eyes, and it, it's gone everywhere. I mean, to me, it's just what, what, what you do. And it was an example of, of sportsmanship. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is, is really my question that I would like to discuss. Um, is, it, is it more remarkable in today's day and age that the high school baseball player did what he did, or is it more remarkable that he's receiving so much praise for being a, a good sport? And, and where do you, where does that come from? 855-616-1620. Is it remarkable that he did it, 
Or is it more remarkable that today's day and age, we're just overwhelmed and we're shocked in an era where you've got the parents that are screaming at the umpires and you've got kids that are yelling at each other and you've got all this stuff that the simple act of turning around at your lowest moment, shaking the umpire's hand, thanking him for doing a good job, that that is now something that we are calling out. 855-616-1620, your thoughts on this we discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. I just think this is a great feel-good story. To the, and, and the Lord knows we need enough of those feel-good stories out there. And that's why I wanted to start the program with it. You know, high school catcher, senior, his team has just been eliminated from the state baseball uh, championships in Virginia. And his first response, and it's not contrived, is, all right, immediately after the ball is hit that's going to cause his team to lose the game, he turns around, he sticks out his hand, and he shakes the umpire's hand and, and thanks him. What, what a wonderful gesture of sportsmanship. And it's, of course, the story has gone viral, and it's getting all this attention. To me, the other interesting thing is it's getting all this attention, because apparently this is something that's so unique. Instead of taking his mask and his glove and slamming it down and stalking off, his reaction is to turn around and, and thank the umpire. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Jim and Cudahy. Jim, you're first. Hello. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Jim. Um, to answer a couple of questions for you and what you said at the previous run-up to this, it is remarkable. It's remarkable that a kid in this day and age has the respect to turn around and shake the umpire's hand. It's remarkable that we as a people find this to be as heartwarming a story as it is. To answer your last question, though, however, and you mentioned it before, where did this come from? This came from his parents. Mm-hmm. This kid was raised right. Right, right. It, it, it is. that you, Somewhere along the line, you learn this. this kind of behavior anymore. Yeah, somewhere yeah. along the now line, you learn it. are enforcing this kind of behavior. Right. Yeah, to me, it's... it. This. I See, I agree with you exactly. You know, we hear a lot about MAGA, make America great again. This is like, this is parents. You know, make families great again. Because obviously, somewhere along the line, Absolutely. this kid was was taught what the right thing to do is and, and maybe it came from the parents maybe it came from the coach but he understands you know what it's like to be a leader and how and what sportsmanship is all about and how you're supposed to react to things like yes. this yeah and i know thanks to God, that to me that that was the the first thing i said you know I'd, I'd love to meet this young man's parents and you know, a couple people are saying, "Well, what, what's the big deal about this? Why th- this is routine?" No, here, here you have a kid. This is the end of your career. Your your high school baseball career has just come to an end, and this is your first reaction and to stand up and do the right thing. And it's unique because you don't see it hardly at all. It's far from routine. And I think you got to give people a lot of credit for this. Marcia says many praises to his parents. Um, he's clearly been raised the way a child should be. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. Jeff, I don't find it so remarkable at all. When we were growing up, it was common to do that. Um, but to thank the governor, the umpire for doing a good job, you congratulate your teammates even when you lose. It's just special to be out there and participate. I don't understand what happened after our generation of people who just don't have that respect for each other anymore. Jeff, unfortunately, unfortunately, sportsmanship is very rare. And, and see, and that's, that's kind of 
that's sort of the key that, that you see. You see this when you go to professional ba- games, whether it's baseball or whether it's football or whether it's basketball. You see this with all the stories about the, the youth games where you've got the coaches that are getting in the face of the referees, where we can't get enough officials anymore because the officials are saying they're tired of taking the abuse from the kids. You know, th- this this is what this is all about. And it just shows that it's not a lost art. And it, it shows that maybe this is the way it should be. Jeff, thanks for sharing this beautiful story. It's more remarkable that it's receiving so much attention. And partly it's because we are shocked by a simple act of respect these days. That's how far we've fallen. We don't know what basic respect is anymore. And I guess that's that's the point of um, of this, that, you know, it is it is remarkable. Jeff, I think it's remarkable. It's a classy move by the catcher, which should be applauded. And yes, we are currently inundated with consistent bad behaviors, poor sportsmanship, sore losers, and overall declining matters, uh, manners. And so it's no surprise that this would get noted on social media. Yes, um, that's great. Jeff, I think this is making the news because we have uh, become a nation of tailgaters, people who don't hold doors for others, and a society that thinks it's okay uh, to have your underwear showing out of your pants. Oh, all right, well, I don't know about the last one, but the, the, all this other stuff, it, it's true. We have become a ruder, coarser nation, and, and you see that a lot of times in these sporting events, particularly at this level. I just think it's incredibly cool. So if... Again, you, you can find this. It, it's all over the Internet. It's, uh, you know, all you have to do, I'm sure, is Google, you know, catch your handshake or something like that. It's going to be there. If you follow me on Twitter, I've got a link to the story. But an amazing feel-good story. And, and maybe we'll get to a point someday where this isn't an aberration, where it, it's just, again, that, that common sort of thing. But right now, no, this is very, very different. <laughs> Put me in, Coach. John Fogarty, I think he's at Summerfest. By, by the way, Summerfest is all about bringing you shows you'll brag about and moments that you can't miss. More stages and picture-perfect spaces on the lakefront, local eats, drinks, shopping, and even an all-new children's area for your up-and-coming little rockers. You can get your tickets at Summerfest.com, or you can be listening to my show today and tomorrow for your chance to win a four-pack of tickets from WTMJ. So sometime between now and 3 o'clock, we're going to give you a chance to win a four-pack of tickets. And while you're out there at Summerfest, be sure to stop by and see us. We're going to be broadcasting live every day from the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone. Again, a quick reminder, Summerfest This year, it's over three weekends, Thursday through Saturday, and it starts next Thursday. I'm going to be there broadcasting every weekday, except the first one because there's a Brewers game next Thursday. But Summerfest starts a week from today, and if you happen to be out there, please stop by and say hello. We would love, love to see you. I try to come out of our mobile broadcast facility and say hi at different points of time. Um, So it's always very, very cool. All right, so I I wanted to start off with kind of like a feel-good story because I confess that the rest of the program, eh, not a lot of feel-good stuff that is out there. Um, The stock market, yesterday we talked about this. uh, At the 1 o'clock hour, the the Federal Reserve announced a three-quarters percent rate increase, 0.3 quarters percent of a percentage point rate increase, um, and the stock market responded positively in the short run. 
Um, all that exuberance is gone. Today, the Dow Jones Industrial Average down another 561 points. For a while, it had fallen below 30,000. Now it's back above that. Uh, the NASDAQ down big again, 401 points. So the, the, the market's concern that inflation has, has not been taken care of, it's continuing to, you know, uh, raise its ugly head and so again the the dissipation of wealth is increasing the other news story is if you're thinking about buying a house or actually selling your house well the good times might be over mortgage rates have now hit 5.78 percent that's the highest level since 2008 the highest level in 13 years so a year and a half ago, if you were looking to, to buy a home, you could you could score, and you had, as Brian Wickard says, you know, you had all the right stuff. You could score a thirty-year mortgage under three percent. Now, um, five point seven eight percent. So, you know, you're talking about having to pay, you know, almost twice as much in interest costs uh, moving forward. And there's no doubt about it. That's going to make it a lot more difficult for people to to buy homes moving forward. So not great news on the economic front. So very glad to have you with us. You know, there's a lot of attention being paid to what happened on January 6th. There'll be later the other hearings. The latest example starts at at one o'clock. And I I, again, I, I think it's I think it is fair to examine what went on in the Capitol. As I've said, you know, Donald Trump. His behavior after the election, I think, was a complete and total embarrassment. His refusal to accept the fact that he lost the election and a willingness to then move on from that, I think, has rendered him unelectable in the future. And then his behavior on and around January 6th by by it, if not being a direct conspirator, and I don't think there's any evidence that's going to establish that he was a conspirator with people who might have come to Washington for nefarious purposes, but he clearly lit the lit the fire. And, and it's just, he did not cover himself with glory. I don't believe there's going to be any evidence that suggests that he committed a crime, but it was an embarrassment. And I think, like I say, it's rendered him unelectable. And the ultimate irony of this is, if if after the November 6th election, if Trump would have kept his mouth shut, if Trump would have graciously accepted what happened, if Trump would have um, sort of endorsed the, the peaceful transfer of power, not been involved in this, this the, the, the sort of the politics of just, again, lashing out and, you know, anybody who doesn't agree with me is terrible and things like that. If he could have toned down the rhetoric, he would be, I think, in a, in a very, very strong position to run to be reelected in uh, 2024. Because by any objective standard, you, you look at what has happened to this country under Joe Biden and you compare it to Donald Trump and, and it, it just does not compare. I mean, the Biden presidency has been a complete and total disaster thus far, no matter how you want to judge it, whether it's inflation or it's the stock market 
or it's the border or it's crime. You name it. It's it's been a disaster. But unfortunately, Trump is not positioned to take advantage of that, at least in my opinion, because of his behavior after November 6th. And that might be the ultimate tragedy that he's rendered himself unelectable. And yes, I still think he is unelectable because of that behavior. Whereas if he could have been just a scotch more gracious or just if he could have been gracious about this, he could have, I think, positioned himself for a strong run in 2024. He didn't, and, and I don't think he is. Now, I understand some people are still like Trump 2024, but I just, again, I do not see that happening. But we're, we're focusing a lot on what's going on in January 6th, and I think that that's, that is appropriate to, you know, underscore, you know, what happened. Although, again, I'm not sure we're really plowing new ground. I think pretty much all of us recognize that, you know, Donald Trump just went to great ends to refuse to acknowledge the accept the, accept the results of the election and uh, uh, sort of aligned himself with the, the real, the, the kook fringe in an effort to push this. And it, it didn't work, which is good that it did not work it then demonstrates i think some of the strength of democracy just like the the watergate hearings a number of years ago demonstrated the the strength of democracy but i think it's fair to focus on what went on in the capitol and certainly i think the people who were involved in storming the capitol deserve to be prosecuted and and many many of them are most of them being prosecuted for trespass in a few cases it's assault um, all disorderly conduct, all, all those things are appropriate. And if there were a handful of these yahoos who were, in fact, involved in some harebrained scheme to try to overthrow the government, well, okay, they, they certainly deserve to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. No question about it. But at the same time, all this other this is going on. There, there's all sorts of other, I think, threats to democracy and threats to our way of life that are occurring that aren't getting much attention. For example, you know, one of the grossly undercovered stories is the protests that are going on at, at the home and in the neighborhood of United States Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. It is a violation of federal law, clear-cut violation of federal law, to protest at a home of a justice for the purpose of trying to change that justice's opinion. And yet that is precisely what is going on. You have people from all over the country who are descending into the neighborhood of Justice Kavanaugh. And uh, it's, you know, you read the reports that, that some of the neighbors are talking about and the language and the screaming and the things like this. It's a clear violation of federal law. And yet the Biden Justice Department refuses to do anything about it. I have been on this other issue for the the last month or so. Pregnancy centers are being firebombed. There is this kook terrorist group calling itself Jane's Revenge that has been responsible for, at least claimed responsibility, for the firebombings of at least four pregnancy centers, starting with one in Madison over the course of the last month. And I have said this before, and I stand by it. If there was a kook right-wing group that was going around and proudly bragging about how they had firebombed a Planned Parenthood uh, facility or whatever, you know that this would be a front-page story 
every day. This would be leading the national news. There would be pressure. The attorney general would be asked, where is this investigation? You know, have, have we flooded these areas with um, FBI agents? Where does the investigation stand? As it is, it's pretty much crickets, and it has served to embolden this terrorist, this domestic terrorist group. But but apparently because it's a firebombing of a, of a pregnancy center as opposed to the firebombing of an abortion clinic, well, all right, this is where it gets all the attention, which is just, again, fundamentally wrong. It's a big, big deal. And the, these kooks, they're going to be killing people sometime soon. They are proud of what they are doing. And th- this needs to be, again, we, we need to focus on our domestic terrorist organizations. And if it's a white supremacist group that's committing this sort of stuff, yes, that deserves to be headlines. They deserve to be arrested. They deserve to be prosecuted. But meanwhile, when you've got one of these left-wing kook terrorist groups that is proudly proclaiming and bragging about how they have firebombed abortion uh, pregnancy centers and intend to continue to do that, all right, we're, where is the outrage and where is the investigation and where are the arrests? You had a minor version of this happen in Monroe the other night. And I've got a link to the story. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. And it's it's just this is a smaller example of this. But it shows to me how some on the radical left have now felt and feel emboldened to do whatever it is they want. Now, I understand we are spending a lot of time focusing on the, the reactionary right and the white supremacist group, and that is completely and totally appropriate. Don't get me wrong. When people commit crimes, they deserve to be prosecuted. It needs to be investigated. But here's the story if you haven't heard it. There is a woman named Charity Berry who is running for Congress in Madison. She's one of two Republican candidates, and she's running against long-term entrenched, very, very liberal Democrat, uh, Mark Pocan. He is, he's not going to lose. This is one of the most heavily Democratic districts in, in the country. So, you know, anybody who wants to run for the Republican nomination, you want to say, okay, that, that's great, but it, it's, she's not going to win. Okay, I, I understand all that, but that doesn't mean that you know she shouldn't be able to run. So here's the deal. She had scheduled a, a fundraiser at a place called Vince's Restaurant and Pizzeria in Monroe. Going to have a fundraiser the other night. All right. That fundraiser did not occur because once the word got out that she was going to have the small fundraiser at this restaurant and pizzeria, the building was vandalized. And I, I've got a link to this story with some of the photos about this adult language warning and stuff. But, you know, somebody came out and spray painted this building and the, the store next door, which was like a Dollar General. Both are, are spray painted with things like blank charity berry. Um, other foul insults, a homophobic slur. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. You can see some of the pictures, but but you get the idea. And as a result of this, the effect was that the, the folks at the restaurant, in consultation with the campaign, because they felt threatened that you've got these kooks that are out there that are doing this, you know, they ended up they ended up canceling the, the fundraiser, at least at that particular restaurant. And then they made arrangements. They were going to move the fundraiser to another restaurant. But there was concern that the same people that were 
doing this that they were going to come back and do that that place. So I think they ended up holding it at a private residence, something like that. But but again, you you have the kook fringe that feels emboldened that you can go out and, and you can do this. So you've got you've got pregnancy centers being firebombed. You've got protests at Supreme Court justices' residence in clear violation of federal law, and now you have candidates even. Even candidates who are, at best, long-shot candidates who, in Monroe, Wisconsin, for goodness sake, want to hold a little bit of a fundraiser, and they can't do that because you've got the kook left that is out there trying to intimidate them. And just like we need to be outraged when you have the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys or the white supremacist organizations that are out there engaging in violence or attempts to intimidate people or things like that we also need to be equally outraged when you have terrorists that are trying to blow up pregnancy centers or in this it's a smaller sort of case but intimidate you know candidates who are running for office because they happen to be conservative and this is a story that i think deserves a lot of attention as well the comment is police are investigating i don't know how hard they're investigating and but hopefully they'll catch the idiot the kook, the criminal that ended up doing this, and hopefully they will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law as well. It's just, I guess my point here is, we, we talk a lot about the coarsening of civilization, and we talk a lot about how you know people are engaging in more, they feel emboldened to engage in, engage in more radicalized behavior. My only point is, it's on both the left and the right, and that's something that everybody needs to remember. As I mentioned earlier, Summerfest starts one week from today. I have a four-pack of tickets to give away. Let's give them to caller number 11-855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Caller number 11 wins a four-pack of tickets to Summerfest, which again this year runs over three weekends, Thursday through Saturday. Opening day of Summerfest is one week from today, and they've got a lot of great shows on the line. I'm going to post something about this because I find it to be an interesting story that I would kind of lump into the category of it's God's way of telling you you have too much money. In many states, in order to vote in primaries, you have to register. So you have to be a registered Republican to vote in the Republican primary. You have to be a registered Democrat to vote in the Democrat primary. Wisconsin is one of many other states, though, where they have what are called open primaries, and it doesn't matter. So you can be a Republican and you can vote in the Democratic primary or or vice versa. All right. And there's always been talk of of election meddling, you know, where you have, I don't know, Republicans who think, gee, um, who is the weakest candidate running to challenge Ron Johnson? So we'll vote for that candidate. And, And there's always been talk of that. Now, in Wisconsin, it's never really amounted to anything. I don't think any serious election observer could ever point to a race where there was enough of that kind of crossover vote to really end up making any difference. I just don't think it ever... It, it's it's talked about. It's a theoretical thing, but it, it's it's never happened in any significant numbers. Yet, in 2022, the Democrat, the Democratic Party, apparently has so much money that they are not only encouraging um, people to vote in Republican primaries, but they're picking winners and losers. And I'll, I'll post one of these stories, but. But what's happening is apparently you have Democrats that the Democratic Party that is putting big money 
into races trying to identify candidates that they think will be weaker in November. I mean, I'll give you a classic example of this. Okay, there's a race in Colorado for the U.S. Senate. And there's a state rep. The front runner is a businessman named Joe O'Day, who is generally viewed as the, the strong candidate who is also viewed as perhaps most likely to win that seat. He's got a Republican challenger named Ron Hanks, who has raised, as of March 31st, he raised almost, he'd raised 57 grand versus O'Day had raised 1.4 million. What's happened is the Democrats have raised three and a half million dollars that they are putting into a campaign to attack Ron Hanks. Now, this is the guy who is, this is the guy who's not, you know, gaining any traction. He's the long shot candidate. They're arguing, and the ads, three and a half million, are saying that he's too conservative for Colorado. What they are trying to do is use this kind of like reverse psychology to encourage the conservative voters, the most conservative voters that that here we're going to vote for him because they're saying, look, this is where he is on all these different issues. It's sort of this reverse psychology way to go out and convince people to vote for the guy that is the long shot candidate because then they're going to turn around after the primary and they're going to run ads saying, oh, he, he is too conservative. But what they're trying to do is monkey with the electoral process by, again, sort of trying to use this subterfuge, and we're going to put all this money into trying to do it. Now, this isn't the only race. New York Times has a big story about this. But you see all across this country, the Democratic Party is putting money into supporting the campaigns of what you would call the far right, the fringe Republican candidates, hoping that they win the primaries with the aid of the Democrats and then become less electable in November. It's a bizarre strategy that tells me that you've you've got way too much money on your hands if you can end up doing this. I I don't know that there's going to be any evidence that it's going to actually have any chance of succeeding, because like I say, in in Wisconsin for years and years, there's always been talk about people crossing over and trying to play around. But this is the latest strategy. Try to spend millions and millions of dollars instead of bolstering your own candidate, spend millions and millions of dollars trying to identify and elect the weakest candidate on the other side. It's legal. It's ethical. It's just bizarre. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Who does he think he's kidding? I think one of the most visible areas of, of inflation, it's something that we see every day, multiple times a day as we drive around in our automobile. This is the price of gasoline. Gasoline, I was driving in, I saw it for 5.16 a gallon in the areas where I drive, and maybe you can find it for a little bit cheaper, maybe you can find it for a little bit more expensive, but we're over $5 a gallon. The price of gasoline has probably about doubled over the course of the last couple years. It's staggering what that's doing. As we've talked about before, 
that's one of the things that is fueling not only just the inflationary pressure of gasoline, but it, it's fueling, I think, concerns that we're heading for a recession because as people have to spend more money on necessities, you just got to spend more money to fill up your car so you can get to work and school. That means that you have less money to spend on, on other things as well. It's also, I think, one of the things that's really getting people's attention because you, you've, you've got to drive. And I was watching with interest over the last day or so where, where Joe Biden decided that he, he was, again, not going to accept responsibility for what's going on, and he was going to blame the usual suspects. Well, it, it's Vladimir Putin's war in the Ukraine, and it's those evil oil companies that are making record profits at the same time everybody else is paying money. And it's a refusal to accept the fact that, you know, a lot of the Biden policies are what have led us to this particular position. Now, now, hear, hear me out for, well, ever, ever since, well, certainly since he was running for president, Joe Biden has made it very clear that he wants he wants to get us out of the fossil fuel business. He His view is, hey, I view a, a country where we're all using this renewable sort of power and stuff like that, and the evil internal combustion engines that drive our automobiles and things like that, they are going to be gone. And you have seen that manifest itself in, in a number of ways since he's become president. I mean, he's made it very, very clear with the renewable fuel standards, which are, you know, actually, they're, they're, as a practical matter, they're unachievable. So, you know, the fuel standards, we want to get 50 gallons uh, per 50 miles per gallon. It, it can't be done. So the, the effect of this is to really be ver- make it very clear that the administration is trying to well, essentially destroy the fossil fuel industry. We want to get everybody into these electric cars, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so what's happened as a result of that, and it's just human nature, you have a lot of these big oil companies who have recognizing that the current administration wants them gone, wants them gone, have just said, okay, well, how can we justify, we've got a, how can we justify building a new oil refinery, for example, to increase production when the government is telling us that it, it wants us out of business? So, all right, yes, we, we could build a new refinery or we could update some of the refineries we have maybe to increase production, but why in the world would we do that when we've got the government that at the same time has declared that they want to eliminate us and their goal is to maybe eliminate us within the next decade. Well, that doesn't make much sense to spend $100 million to build something if you know the government is trying to put you out of business. Now, that's just one example of that. You know, the Biden administration says, well, we've we've given some of these leases and, you know, people can maybe drill. Why would you invest an enormous amount of money in, for example, trying to take on the risk of doing some drilling if, if again, you've got the government that's committed to trying to do everything they can to put you out of business as quickly as they possibly can. So it was interesting that the energy secretary comes out yesterday, I'm paraphrasing, but just a little bit, and says, I'm going to have these meetings with the oil companies, and, and here's what I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them we expect you to produce more. We want you to produce more. But at the same time, yes, you know, we, we want to get America off of fossil fuels. 
Okay. Well, all right. Here, I want you to produce more. I want you to invest more money. I want you to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to increase production. But my goal is to put you out of business in the next few years. And then we wonder why it is that we're not producing as much oil. Now, here's the reality. Right now, and you can blame the big oil companies, but right now, refineries in the United States are operating at about 94% of capacity. Some shut down or closed down or cut back a little bit during COVID when the demand had had dropped, but they're operating at about 94% capacity. So even if you were to be able to juice that a, a little bit, you're still not going to have any sort of appreciable impact, I, I think, at least in the short run, on 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 the price of, of gasoline. You know, what we need to do is we need to have, at least in my opinion, a commitment to let's try to do everything we can to make it profitable and to make it desirable now and in the future to produce natural gas, to produce, you know, crude oil, Drill, baby, drill. But as long as you've got an administration that is out there saying, we want to put you out of business, we want to go with this renewable stuff, why in the world would executives make the commitment to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, for example, to build a new refinery if you know that the government's trying to put you out of business in the very, very near future? Our our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Bottom line is you, you can't have it both ways. And I actually believe in my heart of hearts that until this happened, I think a lot of people in the Biden administration loved the idea of high gas prices. A a lot of the here, let's save the planet type of, you know, climate change folks, they love the idea of high gas prices because the idea is if we have high gas prices, people will stop driving. They'll get rid of their cars. They'll use public transportation more, etc. Well, that's not how it's playing out in the real world, especially since we're not at a point right now where electric cars are practical or feasible or cost efficient enough. And as I've said before, while I don't ever see myself going the electric car route, I, I don't have a problem with it. I think there's all sorts of issues. You gotta deal with the, you know, electrical grid which can't support it. You gotta get charging stations. You gotta figure out again where the electricity is going to come from. You have to figure out battery life, all that sort of stuff. You have to be able to recharge them in a reasonable period of time. And and there will be a time when the technology catches up to that. But that's not now. And this war that we have launched on the fossil fuel industry, it's coming home to roost. And for Biden to say, well, it's all Vladimir Putin. Yes, the war in Ukraine has 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 caused all sorts of problems. COVID caused problems with the with the supply chain. But but this is, in many respects, I think, a direct result of what you've seen when you declare war on a particular industry. You say, we're going to put this industry out of business. And then at the same time, you say, yes, we're trying to put you out of business, but we want you to produce more of the product now. You can't have it both ways. 855-616-1620. <laughs> I mean, see, here's the problem. You know, Joe Biden wants to blame the, the oil companies for the fact that there, there there's a shortage of oil that's out there. The problem is refineries are producing in this country. They're, they're pumping at about 94 percent right now. And you can you can 
tweak it a little bit to get a little bit more. But the truth is that's probably not going to make that much difference when it comes to price. What you need is you need more drilling, you need more aggressive expansion, and you need more refineries. Right. Well, here's the deal. It doesn't if you have, in this case, these oil companies and you've got somebody in the White House who is pronouncing the fact that he wants to put you out of business in the next five to 10 years. That's it. Want to get America away from its dependent on fossil fuels and things like that. Well, who in their right mind is going to say, OK, yes, we, we could. We want to build a new refinery and that's going to cost one hundred million dollars or whatever that number is. Well, why in the world would we build that new refinery to increase capacity if at the same time? the government is threatening to put us out of business. You cannot have it both ways. And that's the mistake that the Biden administration made. I I have no problem with trying to move towards cleaner energy. We're just not ready to do that at this point in time. Or then we have to at least acknowledge that the policy of doing that is going to result in people paying five and six and seven and eight dollars a gallon for gasoline. And then you have to kind of live with that. But Biden is trying to have it both ways. He's trying to say, I'm going to put these oil companies out of business, but yet I want them to pump more. And I'm upset that people are paying five dollars a gallon. You cannot have it both ways. And the high gas prices are not exclusively the the fault of the Biden policies. There's other stuff around. But don't make a mistake. The Biden policies certainly contribute to this high cost because they're doing everything they can to discourage oil companies from investing and from drilling and doing things like that. And that is by design. They want high gas prices because it will force you to find alternative measures. Problem is, we're not ready for those alternative things yet. All right, let's start with Lamar in Orlando. Lamar, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Uh, good afternoon. Um, so this 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 is topic is flustering to me because on one hand, you know, I, I understand. I don't. I don't think you're going to reinforce the you know fossil fuels out of business because of global demand for fossil fuels. On the other hand, as as a consumer, I don't know why we do this roller coaster every few years. And and it's not all. It's, I get it that policy is affected, but the smallest things happen that affect gas prices. Katrina affected gas prices. And I'm 40 years old, so I'm right. kind of dating myself with some of these events. But Katrina, the Gulf War, uh, the you know the war, you know the current war, all these things affect gas prices because it's a global commodity. And it, and it feels like every time a small blip happens, we pay the brunt of it. And mm-hmm. I feel like as a consumer, we would begin to look for alternatives. Literally, almost every car manufacturer now makes electric vehicles. And the demand is slowly starting to creep. And as a consumer, I would feel like you would be tired of the roller coaster. You just move on because at the end of the day, yeah, we complain about the high gas prices, but we are not going to give up our automobiles. It's just not yeah. going to happen. You're not going to use mass transit because it doesn't really exist decently outside of the northeastern states, northeastern U.S. And so, you know, we just kind of stick in this roller coaster and then we complain about it. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, it is interesting. You, you talk about like the blips that we have, the ups and downs with gas prices. And, you know, to your point, it's. It, for example, a refinery. You, you have you have an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, or you have a hurricane that goes through the Gulf of Mexico and takes a couple refineries out, and and gas prices go up fifty or sixty or seventy cents. You know, and then they ultimately come back down. Yeah, you're right. We're we're very dependent, and that's why I think there will be a time, Lamar, when the free market supply and demand and costs 
really push a lot of people towards like the electric vehicles. But I, I think we've got a long way to go before we're at that stage. And like I said, I think you got to figure out how to get more battery life and how to bring them down in cost and how to get, you know, more charging capabilities and all sorts of things. So, so a couple of things. Um, and here in Florida, like we have, we have an amazing infrastructure for electric cars. I mean, they're all over the place down here. And of course the solar injuries industry is big here. Cause like people, yes. It kind of goes hand in hand. You know, consumers will put panels in their solar panels in the house to buy an electric car. And there's a ton of charging stations here. So I think that we're, we're moving a lot faster, obviously, because of the sunshine. But on the, uh-huh. on the note of like the refineries, even if we're, how long does it take from building a refinery until we would actually see a net effect? That's like a couple of years. Yeah, isn't it? right. And and I don't. I'm not. I I could be wrong, but I don't think we've built a new refinery in this country for years. I, and somebody can correct me on that. But I, I know we certainly haven't built very many because of all the expense and uh, the uncertainty here. At people, the the companies just aren't willing to invest in that. Why would they though? Yeah. If, if I'm if I'm getting if if I'm getting if I can raise the price based on pure demand on what I'm producing. Why would I even waste the money for a new, you know, when I, I it's essentially, yeah. I, I've got the market cornered, you know, uh, those are my opinions. No, but no, thank you. great show, by the way. No, Jeff. well, thanks, Lamar. No, no, and, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a fair thing. And it's also, why would you, why would you, why would you, and I, I know I'm repeating myself, but it, it's this, this basic point that some people just don't, don't seem to get. Why would you, one of our texters says, look, okay, if I'm in the dairy industry. And if the government comes out and says, we think we think dairy products are bad for people and we are going to try to eliminate dairy products from our people's diets in the next five or ten years. And we're going to do that through increasing regulations on dairy farms and all this. We're declaring a war on cows, essentially. All right. The guy says, OK, if that was the policy, why would I invest money in increasing the, the size of the herd of my dairy cows? Why would I build technology to increase the production of milk? I, I wouldn't. So if the government would then turn around and say, well, we're trying to get people to get them away from dairy products. But in the short term, there, there's a crisis. So we, we need more milk. Why would you end up doing that? The, the policies make a difference. And again, I want to be fair to Biden. Oh, I can't believe you're being. No, I, I am. It's not all him. There, there's a lot of stuff that's going on during COVID. The oil companies cut back on production because demand uh, just sort of dropped off the, the face of the earth because we weren't driving. We weren't traveling as much. So it takes a while to gear up with that. But let us be honest. The Biden administration has declared war on the fossil fuel industry, whether it is discouraging new drilling, putting in new permit requirements, passing EPA rules, which are going to make it almost impossible for automakers to meet those rules with the internal combustion engines and and i could go on and on you know killing the keystone pipeline addition all that sort of stuff they've signaled very very clearly that they want the fossil fuel industries out of business and i I appreciate our caller lamar you know he's down in florida and, and 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 that's great maybe you can use solar panels maybe solar panels are fine you know, in, in Florida to generate some electricity. But all right, try doing that in, I don't know, Watomo, Wisconsin, in the middle of January when it's 20 below. Try powering your house, heating your house with solar energy. It's just flat out not going to work. We need natural gas. You know, we need oil. 
and this idea that we're ready to move away from it and that we should declare war on these producers is just, I think, incredibly short-sighted. Yeah, it's another bloody day on Wall Street. Uh, yesterday, after the Federal Reserve announced a, a three-quarters of a percent rate increase, the, there was concern that the market was going to crater then. It didn't, in part because all the crashing and cratering of the last week had been sort of predicated on a 0.75 and a three quarters of a percentage point rate increase. And so it kind of been the bad news had been factored in. So the stock market actually had a pretty good day yesterday, or at least by comparison, the way it's been for the last three months. Uh, but today, reality returns. The Dow Jones right now down 2.7%. That's down 838 points. The NASDAQ, and now the, the Okay, we're all into round numbers. The Dow Jones, for the first time in a long time, has now dropped below 30,000. Right now it's at 29,800. I think its high was somewhere around 36,000 last year. The NASDAQ, it's even bloodier. The NASDAQ is down 505 points, which is a 4.5% increase decrease. And so, again, the, the amount of wealth that has been lost in this country over the last three, four, five months is just absolutely staggering. But the problem is there's, there's nowhere to go. It's Inflation is at 8.6%. So if you could somehow pull your money out and just like put it in, in a sock somewhere, you're, you're, losing, you're losing value to that because inflation is 8%. So you automatically have 8% less moving forward if you try to if if you try to ride it out which is really not that much choice you ride it out you don't know how much farther down this can go in part because you don't get the idea that anybody has any idea as to what they they need to do to deal with this and of course we've got an administration whose recipe for this spiraling inflation is let's let's put even more money into the economy let's you know, this all started with that $1.9 trillion bailout in April of last year, and it's done nothing but get worse since then. So, yeah, let's cancel student loans. Let's make a $1.6 trillion in debt go away. Let's put that burden on the taxpayers so people don't have to pay their student loans. They can buy other stuff. Won't that be great? Well, you want to talk about something that just contributes to inflation. It's just it's a really bad economic time right now. And I think for many people who've gotten used, I was talking to a friend of mine who's in his early 30s, who's never really been through, I mean, this kind of bad economic stretch was a little bit, I I think, you know, it kind of heard about, you know, what happened in 2008 and it rebounded. And of course, a couple of years ago, when you had the onset of COVID, you had the market that took a, that, that, took a nosedive, but it came back very, very quickly. This one, I think, for a lot of people, feels very, very different. And I know a lot of people are wondering, you know, where, where is the bottom going to be? And the answer is, I don't think anybody knows right now. At some point in time, people are going to recognize that, okay, the, the country is economically sound and that maybe somebody somewhere will figure out how to deal with spiraling prices and, and maybe we'll get stuff under control, but might not be for a while. All right, interesting story in the local newspaper. We have talked on this program over the years about what used to be the Northridge Shopping Center. And as I've told you, if you grew up around here in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you will remember Northridge as a thriving area. 
and, and and it was. You had Anchor stores, you had Sears, you had Boston store, you had Pennies, you had a movie theater, you had a ton of restaurants, you just had a ton of shops. Northridge was the place. If you grew up in the North Shore, that's the place that if you grew up in Mequon, that's the place that you went to hang out back in the heyday of malls. There were all sorts of restaurants in the ring outside of Northridge. For people who aren't familiar, Northridge, think, think 76th and Brown Deer Road. That's kind of where it starts. There were all sorts of restaurants that ringed Northridge and all sorts of businesses. There was a big to- Toys R Us was there. It was a thriving area. And then it all fell apart. And there's a lot of reasons why it fell apart, but it fell apart and it fell apart in a big way. And as we've talked about before, Northridge has become an absolute, total, complete, 100% ghost town. It it just, there's nothing out there. The Northridge Mall is by and large, it's vacant. It is decrepit. It is an eyesore. It is a blight and it is dangerous. You have people that are breaking in there now to steal stuff. That property is owned by and large by a Chinese investment operation. We've talked about this before, who came in with this idea that, hey, we're going to put all this money in and we're going to build a giant trademark, stuff that never was, was going to happen. It was complete pie in the sky. And now they're, they've refuse to commit to doing that. They haven't spent a dime towards that. And the city is trying to condemn the property and they want to take it back and they want to raise it and they want to try R-A-Z-E, try to then find some other use for this. But this is the same conversation that we've been having for the last 20 years. The matter is tied up in court. There's no plans that are going on. Meanwhile, the, the, the place, it continues to deteriorate. And the neighborhood around it continues to deteriorate. There is, I don't know if there's any other businesses that are still out at Northridge, but the one business that is out there is a Menards, you know, the, 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 um, the, the home improvement retailer. And Menards is out there and they're located in, it's, I think it's the old Sears building that, that they've got at least part, if not all of that. Matter of fact, I was at that Menards maybe a year ago or so with a friend of mine. Okay, so here's, here's the problem. They're, they're the only people there. Northridge has become just, like I say, it's become a blight. And th- they're a business that is trying to survive. So the parking lot around Northridge has become a dumping ground. You know, you read the story in the paper, and it's just, you, you shake your head. People abandon old cars there. Almost every form of crap that you can find, you know, apparently is getting dumped into, like, the Northridge parking lot. You know, they're talking about these stories about how there were apparently four semi-trailer trucks um, that had been, like, dumped in, in the parking lot. Tree stumps dumped in the parking lot. Just people dumping any garbage they have in the parking lot by this Menards. And, of course, Menards has to deal with this. City's not doing anything about it. So what Menards wants to do is they say, here's what we want to do. We want to take some of this area in the parking lot, and and we want to turn it into self-storage units. You know, um, we think, first of all, we can make some money doing that. And secondly, we think that by putting these self-storage units in, we, we take away the space. We make it more difficult for people to dump garbage 
in in this parking lot and abandoned trucks and abandoned tree stumps and things like that. So you know th- this it's a win win situation. We take this space, we put it to some sort of productive use, and then we move on. Um, and by the way, you know we think it's it's gonna we're willing to invest. It's gonna cost us about three million bucks to do this, but we think this is a good idea. The city of Milwaukee is apparently thinking that this is a bad idea. They're saying, well, if you build these units on the lot's perimeter, um, you know, and and make it more difficult, you you get you make some money, and you make it more difficult to dump stuff. You know, we appreciate all that, but you know that then might make it more difficult for us moving forward if. Five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, we get our act together and we do level some of these other buildings and we want to put in like light industrial. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The only business that you really have in that area right now is is this Menards. <laughs> that, that's That's it. Menards has this problem that the city can't deal with of essentially its parking lot surrounding area being an open air dump ground. They say this is one of the solutions. We put in the self-service lot. We'll invest some money. We'll be able to do something. They do need to change zoning for that to do it. And the city of Milwaukee is saying, well, no, you know, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, maybe we'll finally get our act together. Isn't it time, at least at this point in time, isn't it time to say, look, we, we've got – we, we've got a bird in the hand. We've got this business that is trying to survive in an incredibly challenged area. We can't help them with all this dumping stuff. Let's let's let them build the storage units. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. To me, look, this makes eminent sense. Menards is, is essentially the only business that, that's left at Northridge. They own this parking lot. The parking lot, just like the rest of the Northridge facility, is a dumping ground. It is a blight. It is an eyesore. People dump tree stumps. They dump all sorts of garbage. There's trucks that are illegally parked there. And the city can't do anything about it. So Menards says, look, here, help, help us out. What we want to do is change the zoning. Let us put self-storage um, units on the, at the perimeter of the parking lot that we own. We're going to invest about $3 million in it. That will make it more difficult for people to come in and dump all this stuff. The city says, well, you know, we, we have these grand plans for Northridge that has been a blight for the last 20 years, and there, there's no real concrete thing that says it's going to be any different today, tomorrow, five years from now, ten years from now. So the city is saying, well, because we might want to do something different, we're not going to help you now. If I were Menards, I'd be thinking about, okay, maybe it's time to bail. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Don. Don, you're on WTMJ. Hey, buddy, how you doing? I'm good. What do you think? Uh, I think the city should just take that land. They've been there for 20 years of eyesore. Take that land for eminent domain, like that type of thing. Tear it down. Charge this guy. Uh, and stop playing around with us. Come on, man. Yeah. Well, the city I- can do it. They've, they've done it before. Yeah, well, you know, they've been trying. I mean, Don, thanks. You know, they've, they've been trying to. I mean, the the city condemned them all, or the and there, there's a couple a couple of the the stores, the the big bo- that used to be the big box store, the department stores. They're, they're, they're um, Boston store, and I think the Sears one. But other than that, the mall it's condemned. But the problem is 
the this Chinese outfit that owns this. They've been fighting this. They won a decision in the state court of appeals, a decision that I thought was really wrong, but then I'm not on the state court of appeals. But anyhow, they're stalling this, and they're stalling this, and they're stalling this. And who knows when or if this might change? And who knows that even if the city were to win and they come in and they'd be able to raise most of that mall, who knows that they'd ever be able to find anybody realistically who was willing to go in and make it light industry or whatever. It's just, it's all these ifs and ifs and ifs. And meanwhile, the building continues, the area continues to deteriorate, and the one business that is out there says, hey, we've got all these problems. Let us at least do something to help ourselves out. Jeff, I listen to your show often. My head is exploding. Northridge resembles a Mad Max movie set. Let whomever develop what they want as long as it is business positive. The community needs it. Um, yes. I, I mean, that, that's it. If I were, if I were the city and I, I looked at what is Northridge, and what is left at Northridge and what has happened to Northridge. And I saw this Menards that was out there and, and Menards is saying, and there's a, there are legitimate objections. Nobody is suggesting that these aren't valid, valid points that are out there. Yes, you know, you've got these, these trucks that just get dumped there. Yes, you've got the, all the garbage that is dumped there. Yes, we recognize that, you know, it's your parking lot. It's a problem, and we recognize that this would maybe make a difference. But, you know, maybe 5 or 10 or 15 years from now, we're going to come up with a different idea. So we're not going to let you do this now. At some point in time, you have to recognize – it's like we talked about yesterday with the domes. And, and look, I'm not anti-dome, but several years ago, they came out with this idea. Here, we're going to raise $66 million, and we're going to do all this stuff with the dome. Six years later, there's not a darn thing that's happened. And now we're looking back, and we're recognizing that that was never going to happen in the first place. And we're no closer to this than they were six years ago. At this point in time, help out the Menards. I mean, look, and I, I, don't, I, I, I have no vested interest in this. Other than you've got a live one out there. You want to say to the city of Milwaukee, you've got a live one. They're running a store in this area where nobody else is running stores or hardly anybody else. And, you know, they're, they're willing to invest $3 million in that property. Why don't you let them do it? Let's talk to Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. If I was uh, Menards, I'd actually just want to just cut my losses. And if they want to donate $3 million bucks. Uh, I haven't put it towards uh, putting prisons up there in that area. That's the best location for that. People complain, family members, they can't visit their family members. It's a closer location. Uh, I can't think of a better place to put it. And at this point in time, it's so a blighted area that uh, yeah. I don't know what else you could put there. Well, Mike, I, I, that, that's one of the, I, I've always said that tongue-in-cheek. Matter of fact, I think we've done a couple topics on that, that if you're looking for like the, an ideal space for a youth prison, you, you could go farther and do worse than that. Now, the folks in the area don't want to hear that, but um, at, at least with the youth prison, you would have crime somewhat under control because right now there, there's just nothing out there to stop the. And, you know, and the sad, there, there's many sad things about the demise of Northridge, but it is also the demise of Northridge has brought down the, the, the surrounding area. I mean, I know people who work in that surrounding area and they just shake their heads and they you know and i mean that really was i I know it's hard to believe but it wasn't really that long ago that this was a thriving area and the fact that not only has it been allowed to deteriorate but that it is allowed to remain in the deteriorated condition as long as it has that's I, i think 
part of the ongoing outrage. Jerry in Milwaukee. Jerry, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. I have to tell you real quickly, I was a restaurant manager when it was thriving out there. It was incredible. There was it was not just restaurants, but anyway, it was clean what, and thriving. What restaurant? I'm just curious. What, what? I'm curious. What restaurant did you manage? I, I managed. I, I managed a Mark's Big Boy that did over a million a year. Mm-hmm. When the incident happened, it cut our our sales in half. And it was not just restaurants, but it was clean and, and busy. It cut sales in half. But honestly, I think they should go out Menards build and, as you say, go with God because it would succeed and it'll do well. Get Menards in there. Yeah, it's just, and of course, the incident you're referring to is what was the guy's name? Anderson, right? Um, and who claimed, yeah, who who murdered his wife and claimed it had been done by a couple. He said like black kids or something like that, and that that I think started the the whole spiraling because people became thought that it was it was unsafe to go there, and then it, it led to this just death exactly. spiral. So you, exactly. but you got a picture. Uh, our restaurant, very very well run. I, I was a manager there. Over a million a year, and it cut our sales almost immediately in half. And that whole area, there was Captain's Steak Joint, there was McDonald's, yeah. it was not just restaurants, there was all these great stores. Uh, Fridays died immediately after that yep. happened in their lot. There was other places, JoJo's. Uh, JoJo's, anyway, yeah. it, it was I remember Farrell's. One, one of my friends used to work at yeah. Farrell's inside the mall, yeah. Well, I'm inside trying to, the mall. It, I'm, it was, I'm, I'm trying to remember, Friday, where was the big boy? Uh, was, the, was the big boy in the, in the, was 80, that? 80. 8020 West Brown Deer Road. It okay. was on the on north side of Brown Deer, all, right off the intersection oh. of 76. 8020 was the address. Oh, yeah. Okay, right on kind of the other side of the street there. Got it. No, no, I, I remember. Exactly, no, right across the street. I remember exactly where you're talking about. No, thanks for calling. It's, it's just, it's it's a travesty. You know, what what has happened? And I guess my advice to the city of Milwaukee is the last thing you want to do is have one of the few remaining businesses that is operating in that area to drive them out of, of business or to make them just have the decision that, you know, we're, they're trying to make a difference in an area. I understand if you had a plan in place and you said, look, we, we have these people are going to come in and we're going to redevelop this area and we're going to turn it into light industry or whatever. And we've got a two-year plan to do it. I, I understand where you might say, okay, this doesn't fit in with the goals. But there's no plan. There's no plan. Wake up, Milwaukee. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. All right. Some people thought it was a good idea at the time. How is that turning out? You know, we're, we're told among progressive theories and things like that, that, you know what, what we really need to do is we need to be more understanding. And when it comes to, for example, drug abuse, well, we, we shouldn't, we should move away from the ideas of, of criminalizing this and holding people accountable. And, and we should, we should be more tolerant about these simple things. And, and, and it'll all, it'll all work out well. And instead of treating this as a criminal, for example, you know, drug use of hard drugs, instead of treating it as a criminal justice matter, what we need to do is we need to treat it as a health matter. And that will make things better or not. So here is the story. This is the way the story that starts off caught my attention. Portland, Oregon. Now, I have um, I think. Portland, Oregon is actually one of the great cities, or at least used to be one of the great cities in the United States. 
not so much anymore. Between the um, the lack of respect for law enforcement and the various rioters and rioting that was allowed to continue, in Portland's really gone downhill. But here's the way the story reads. The streets of Portland, Oregon, resemble an open-air drug market. Heroin, meth, and fentanyl use, fentanyl use is rampant and often visible on city streets. Portland police officers drive by drive by homeless addicts buying and using. The signs of drug addiction are increasing throughout the state. Oregon ranks second highest among U.S. states for substance abuse, with nearly one in five adults addicted. Let me put that number out there again. Oregon ranks second highest in the U.S. for substance abuse, with nearly one in five adults addicted. So what happened? How how could that be? Well, actions ha- elections have consequences. In November of 2020, Portland, uh, Oregon voters overwhelmingly passed Measure 110. It's called the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. What it did was it decriminalized possession of small amounts of hard drugs like heroin, meth, cocaine, and phenytol. The new law made possession of those substances a Class E violation, which is the equivalent of a traffic ticket punishable by a maximum $100 fine. But that fine is dismissed if you get a ticket, if you will call a help hotline and complete a health assessment. The idea is to connect drug abusers with services and treatment instead of putting them behind bars. 16 months into the first in the nation experiment. Well, you want to guess how it's worked out? Drug overdose deaths hit an all-time high in 2021 with 1,069, a 41% increase from 2020. Almost nobody is getting treatment. According to their studies, after just one year, 136 people had entered treatment. Less than 1% of those helped by this measure, and and that actually might be low. Uh, The Justice Department in Oregon says that they wrote 2,576 tickets for drug possession through May. 75% of the tickets resulted in convictions, but almost all because the offender never showed up in court. Um, The the number of people calling the hotline, well, 116. And of those 116, 66 were people calling just to make sure that this was kind of real. They've ended up treating like about 25 people. The, The numbers are staggeringly, staggeringly low. On top of this, so you've got open-air drug use. You've got more people who are addicted. You also have a lot of the other problems that go with this, namely property crimes are through the roof because the the people that are addicted to cocaine or to meth or to heroin, it's not like they're in general out working nine-to-five jobs. If you know what I mean, they're trying to figure out ways to support their drug habit and all the other things they've got going on. So it's either homelessness, a lot of it is theft, a lot of it is property crimes to support these drug habits. And yet 
you have some of these progressives who say, well, it, it's too early. We, we understand that drug use is rampant. We understand the streets are appear like an open-air drug market, but that's just because we haven't had enough time for this program to sink in. My response would be, nope, it, it's actually the opposite. The longer... The longer you just simply say, here, go ahead and shoot up the heroin and take the fentanyl, fentanyl and all that, the, the, the more people are going to die and the more addicts that you are going to have. And if the number right now is this like kind of staggering number of, of 20%, one in five adults addicted, I predict if you let this go on, pretty soon it's going to be two out of every five. I mean, you are turning, in this case, it's the state of Oregon, you are turning it into, you have created an entire addict class. And yet there are people who think this would be a good idea to do across the country. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I don't have any problem with making drug treatment available to people who who are addicts. No problem with that at all. But to take away the criminal justice aspect of it, to essentially hold people unaccountable for shooting heroin or doing cocaine or taking meth or, uh, again, you know, the, the heroin substitutes, the fentanyl that, that kills people, what you are doing is you are sealing the death warrant for at least a certain population. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. What about this? Should we just simply turn around and do like Oregon did and decriminalize hard drug use? What would that make the streets of Milwaukee look like? What would that make the streets of Green Bay look like? What would it make the streets of Madison look like if we simply said, okay, just do what you want. Cops will drive by. They're watching you shoot up. That's okay. You know, no problem. Maybe they'll give you a ticket. Maybe. 855-616-1620. You want to talk about, you know, really destroying society. That's, to me, that's it. But what do you think? Eight five five six one six one six one. During the break, I was talking to a friend of mine who is um, from the Seattle area. He said it's the same thing. He said Seattle, which has uh, effectively, maybe not completely legally, but effectively decriminalized like hard drugs, said it, it's just it, it's an open air drug market. And it market. You've got all the other problems because you've got all these addicts. There's a huge homelessness problem. Um, you've got aggressive junkies who are committing crimes and who are begging money and doing all the different things that go along with it. I, this th- this is look. We are. What's going on, a lot of the problems we have in this country are because we've decided we want to be progressive. You know, we we don't want to lock people up for committing crimes. We don't. Okay, so the kids stolen 12 cars. Well, we we don't want to come down too hard on them. Why not would be my question. And and this is the same thing you've got when you. When you decriminalize, the, and we're not talking about marijuana now, when you decriminalize the use of hard, devastating, destructive drugs, you, by definition, will increase the use of it. It, it just does. And so you have people who are more inclined to maybe experiment with this stuff, and if you use fentanyl, you end up dead. If you end up her- with heroin, you end up as a junkie very quickly, and then you end up dead. Same thing true with cocaine. Same thing true with methamphetamine. Why we would do this and not recognize that all these things that are currently happening in Oregon in general, and Portland in particular, it's now... 
the second highest state in the country for drug addiction. One out of every five adults. <laughs> Can't we recognize that this just doesn't flat out work? Let's talk to Richard in Milwaukee. Richard, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, I don't believe in decriminalizing drugs. And um, also, uh, tying back into other things, like um, in um, Detroit, uh, they, they found a, a kid um, uh, from the suburbs in um, one of those abandoned houses, mm-hmm. and they started tearing those houses down and started building farmland. And back to Northridge, I live in the Northridge area, and there's kids, I see kids going in there and doing drugs. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's already one, one person who, who worked there died yep. in Northridge. Uh, he was in a box or something. I, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but he worked there, and, and he got electrocuted um, by a box inside of Northridge. That's one of their own workers. Also, I can't figure out how they could take all that farmland and build Foxconn and they could take all that farmland from 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 people, yeah. from good people, and then Northridge is sitting there, and they can't seem to take it from anybody. Yeah, Richard, thanks. For, I don't want to get too far afield because I, I want to focus on this decriminalization thing. But you know, we'll we'll, we'll revisit the, the rest of that at some point in time. I promise. But this is right. This is. And I guess I feel a very strong passion about this because back in the day, you know, when I started out as a, you know, chasing drug dealers and things like that, you, you got to see firsthand the impact. And back then it was cocaine. You know, you, you got to see firsthand the impact that that, that addiction had on, on people and how it destroyed families. And it's only gotten worse. You, you put heroin in the picture and you put methamphetamine into the picture and you, it, it's not like, you know, you think you're doing somebody a favor. Okay. You know, here, just just use heroin openly. That that's okay, and we're going to try to get you into treatment. But it doesn't work that way, and all it does is lead to more addicts, and it leads to all these other attendant problems of crime and things like that. And you know, the guy I was talking to who was you know telling me about Seattle, he says you, you can't even walk on the streets. There's 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 syringes that are that are all over the area. You know, there's all the drug paraphernalia that's there. As I was saying earlier, if 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 you're on the streets doing meth or doing heroin or doing cocaine or any of this other stuff, it's not like you're being a productive citizen. I mean, you're you're scrounging and trying to figure out whether it's aggressive panhandling or robbery or whatever. You're trying to figure out how to support yourself and your habit. You're not getting better. There needs to be, at least in my opinion, some penalty that's out there. And this idea that we're going to treat this as completely and totally a health, public health problem, and it is a public health problem, but that's only one thats only one facet of it. And it drives me just absolutely crazy that we have this progressive thinking, oh, here's what we're going to do, and it's this pie-in-the-sky theory, and it doesn't work in real life. And you're seeing that play out in Oregon. You make it legal for people to sit and shoot up on the streets. And it's decriminalization. It's essentially the same thing. You make it legal to do it. Well, you're going to get more junkies, and you're going to create a junkie class. And what's going to happen is you're not going to get these people into treatment, and you're going to see lots and lots more people die. You're not helping people out. Nancy, you're on WTMJ. Nancy, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Um, I lost a sister to addiction. I almost lost two of my nieces to addiction. I I know nurses who have lost their job um, to addiction. It takes that threat of losing everything, of losing your children, or not losing your livelihood, of losing your life, of going to jail. Um, it 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 leads to 
dirty crimes, prostitution, stealing, credit card theft. My my sister did it all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's sad. It's sad what's going on in Oregon. Um, as a, I'm a retired nurse, and when I work, worked in nursing, I caught nurses diverting. One actually came back and she told my sister what Nancy did that was the best thing for me. She saved my life. Did I feel bad about having to tell? Yeah, I felt terrible. But it's wrong. Mm -hmm. It's wrong and it's illegal and there has to be some threat of punishment to help you get clean. There does. And and Nancy, and and I'm so very glad you called in because you put voice to what I was just saying about how when you have addiction among loved ones or acquaintances, it's just so devastating. My guess is you reached out to your sister. You tried to do everything to she, help. but Everything. She died on the streets in Houston, still prostituting herself at 55 and died with cocaine in her system. It's, it's devastating. And it was devastating to her kids. Well, right. Now, thank, Nancy, thank, thanks for the call. And I guess it's just that that is the reality of it. And I think you have so much of this progressive thinking that, oh, doesn't this sound good? You know, what, what we'll do is we'll let people do it. We don't want to have consequences. And then they'll be so glad that, you know, once they've been caught that they'll, they'll get, they'll get treatment. Well, that's not the way it works in the real world. They just, go fall deeper and deeper into their addiction. Jeff, as somebody who lost my dear boyfriend of nine years plus in 2020 to an overdose with fentanyl, I beg them not to do this. He was 63, a former Marine with PTSD. He was in a program getting help. Making it easier to get the drugs would not have helped. It would have just magnified the problem. Absolutely. You take away the consequences, all consequences for this behavior. And and then you're surprised that this kind of stuff is happening. And you're starting to see, you know, the, the numbers. Jeff, it's getting ridiculous what people want to allow and consider acceptable in society. Where am I going to go to live with my family if we continue to bend rules and make exceptions for things that are not safe and not acceptable? I mean, absolutely. I mean, this do, have we lost our ability to say, you know, that there is a public interest in, in this? I mean, to me, I don't know. This is like saying, all right, let's take a population of alcoholics and you know, let's put you in a situation. We're going to give you all the free booze you want. And you can just, we're going to let you, you know, sit in a public park and you can drink as much as you want whenever you want. Well, okay. Um, do you think that a lot of those alcoholics are then going to go and get treatment or are they going to simply say, hey, this is great. I don't have to worry about any of this stuff here. I'm just going to continue to drink and drink and drink. And then you're going to have people that end up dying. It's just it is infuriating to me that this is what you are starting to see out of public policy. And again, you've got some of these folks who think, oh, this sounds good. And maybe maybe on paper. It sounds like it's a decent thing, but in the real world, it doesn't work. And you're starting to see that in Oregon. And again, part of the problem is people don't want to believe that the stuff doesn't work. But how many more people have to die on the the wings of this? Let's be progressive. Let's be touchy feely. Oh, people are dying. Oh, you know, we've got this incredible addict class. But, you know, what the heck? Now, a number of people are saying, Jeff, uh, you were talking about how Oregon is this now the second most drug addicted state in the country. What, what's number one? That, that's a fair question. Uh, 
and I'm trying to I'm trying to look back at the sources because I want to make sure we're comparing apples to apples. Um, if if you if you include drug addiction as alcohol, Alaska is very much up there. But if if uh, by drug addiction we're talking about you know what we're talking about here, which is heroin and cocaine and methamphetamine and the like, uh, the District of Columbia is on a percentage basis probably number one and number two is colorado number one is colorado as far as states so colorado has a huge drug problem as well but shouldn't we be i guess the point of the the conversation for the last 20 minutes has been this this idea that we can decriminalize our way out of america's fascination with a drug problem it just it flat out doesn't work did i tell you what we're doing tonight no pickleball you are i i have never okay this is a this is a um, it is an experiment because I, I know pickleball is the the big thing that's out it's there. It's all the rage. It is it is all the rage, and I have never done it. I've never watched it. So tonight, Fran and I are participating with like three other couples. It's like a beginner's pickleball clinic to experiment to see that. So it's interesting. Years and years and years ago, I worked part-time at a YMCA and there were pickleball courts and people would get really upset if you took their specific pickleball court on a particular day. So it is, uh, you know, it's one of those sports where people like certain things a certain way. Well, they, I, <laughs> I am I am told, I mean, I used to like, it's been a year since I played tennis, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm told that there's elements of, of tennis to it, but you don't have to, you don't have to run as much and things like that. For sure. So we'll, I, I but I have no framework, uh, no frame of reference a, at all. You know, I, although, although I went out and I bought, I bought two pickleball paddles. So we've got paddles and I've seen what the balls are and stuff like that. So we'll, I will give you the report tomorrow, but it was, it's actually, it's my wife's instinct. She says, look, you know, we, we should try this. I mean, it's, you know, we've, we, we're, we know all these people that do this and we're surrounded by these places that we belong to or go to that have pickleball courts. So we should check it out. And you're a good husband. So you said yes. I am a, well, <laughs> I, I hope, I hope she would Fran think would that. say that. I yes. hope she would think that. But yeah, I said yeah. yes. Well, well, I'm, I'm up to trying stuff, you know, and the deal was, okay, it's six to seven and then we'll have reservations and go out to dinner somewhere or something yeah, yeah, yeah. after that. So, okay, I'll, I'll give you that report. Or Good if luck. I come in and I'm limping, you know, tomorrow or something, <laughs> you'll know that's it. Pickleball injury. All right, when we come back, breaking up is both hard to do and expensive. I will explain. We will discuss. Okay, we just had a teachable moment. Debbie Lazica, who just brought, walked in, my, my, my producer. I have a new producer. I haven't introduced him to the audience, but okay, it's yes. Charlie. Charlie's been with about a month, and he's doing a great job, doing a great Hello, job Charlie. with the bumper music. But we just had a teachable moment because he, he said to me during the break, I was, I was talking about pickleball. I've never played pickleball. Tonight, right. Fran and I are going to do it. We've got a beginner's pickleball class. Fun, so, okay. okay, just to, to see if we like it. And he, Charlie says, we just had a caller who said pickleball originated in Milwaukee. Oh, I, I thought, oh, that. That's that's kind of know that either. No, I didn't know that either. Well, because it's not true. Oh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I'm I'm just kind of oh that's kind of that would be sort of a dazzling sort of detail. So I know Bainbridge Island, Washington. In the summer of 1965, pickleball was founded by Joel Pritchard, Bill Bell, and Barney McCallum on Bainbridge Island, Washington. Okay, so then they oh, and and so but no, the, the teachable moment was and and this is something that uh, uh, it's like works for me and works for for other people. 
when you get the calls, you've got to be somewhat skeptical. I'm just, I'm just saying. Trust me, that's that's kind of the teachable moment because I'm sure somebody was calling up in good faith and had heard that pickleball was started in Milwaukee in Wisconsin, but it wasn't. It's a good idea to double check and it's you know, always, check sources. And it such. is always. I, yes, I've learned that the hard way in doing a radio show in this market, full or part time, for 27 years. Yes, it's always like you want to, you know, you you get that phone call, you might want to think about going for it. Uh, this is why I'm not on the news team. <laughs> well, no, no, and it, 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 I just, it's, it's, it, no, it, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's just, I, I just, I want to, sometimes I like to peel back the curtain of what goes on at the radio station, and it's just, it's one of those things where you just, it's a teachable moment, and just because somebody calls, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's great. Now turn off your, there you go. <laughs> also, the second teachable moment is turn off the microphone there. Okay, all right. Let us move on. Breaking up is both hard and expensive to do. During the pandemic, one of the businesses that just took off like a rocket was the, the whole business of, of selling exercise was exercise equipment. Why? Because people couldn't go to the gyms anymore, and there was no business, I would argue, that benefited more from that rise in home exercise equipment than Peloton. You know, the, the stationary bikes, where you go out and you, you they're, they're 2500 2600 bucks, and then... On top of that, they sell you the service where for like a hundred bucks a month or so, you, you have the video trainer and you do all that stuff. So Peloton, you know, really made a fortune for a while. And I remember we did topics back at the time where I was saying I didn't get it and in part. And it, it struck me as being a, a fad and, and a bubble that was going to burst because you could buy, you could go out and you could buy a really good exercise bike. I'm not talking about a junky one, but if you wanted an exercise bike, you could buy a really good exercise bike for 500 bucks. And, and yet people were paying $2,600 for the Peloton type of bikes. All right. Well, we've talked about this before. Um, Peloton, um, over the last couple months, lo- has lost $439 million. It's lost 20% of its workforce as, um, as a result of, of the decreased demand. They built a facility or contract a facility to build bikes. Well, that's now shuttered because they, they, don't, they don't need a, as, as much. Um, business just has kind of fallen off. There's a story about this uh, in the New York Times. The headline is Breaking Up with Peloton. And it, it starts off talking about a, a woman who paid $2,650 for her Peloton and accessories. Well, here's the first two paragraphs. During the first two months of the pandemic, pandemic, Christy Falzone, who lives in Chicago, used her Peloton every day. It was a godsend, she said. She could exercise in her spare bedroom between Zoom meetings without worrying about other people's germs. Lately, the spark has gone out. Last month, Ms. Falzone, 39, listed the stationary bike on Facebook Marketplace. She paid 2650 bucks for her Peloton and accessories. She paid 2650 bucks for her Peloton and accessories. But after a month of waiting for buyers, she begrudgingly sold it for 1100 bucks. I wanted to sell it before everybody else did. I'm afraid that more and more people are going to start 
selling them, and I wanted to get in before the value completely fell apart. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I realize I'm going down into dangerous territory here because I know that there are some people who bought these Peloton bikes or had them, absolutely love them, swear by them, still do it every day. But the business, it's it's fallen off. And you're getting to the point, now I don't want to say taking a $2,600 bike and selling it for $1,100 is giving it away, but the value of these bikes is is just dropping like a rock. So... What happened? I think it's pretty obvious, and I think it's also should have been pretty obvious to everybody back at the height of the pandemic. But what what happened? Why has Peloton fallen on such hard times? 855-616-1620. I've got a theory. What's yours? We discuss. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. So, so what happened with Peloton? Um, the, the, the business model is completely cratering. Um, they've laid off 20% of their staff. Story in the New York Times talks about a woman who paid 2600 bucks for her exercise bike. And now she, she finally, after a month of trying to find a taker, found somebody for 1100 bucks. What happened? Jeff, I think the Peloton was a fad, and it was going to be short-lived no matter what. I think with rising inflation costs and other costs of living increasing, people are figuring they're not going to drop $2,600 or more dollars on a bike when you go to an equipment store and get a decent bike for a few hundred dollars. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. Um, uh, let's see. Jeff, I've always thought that the use I got out of a product had value. So if I paid $2,600 for something and used it for 12 months, I wouldn't expect $2,600 for when I'd sell it. Um, would you? $1,000 seems fair. Now, after all, it's used. It's hardly a collector's item. No, it's not holding its value. No, I don't think that's a fair assessment a- at all. I think, you know, you, you buy stuff, and if, if you buy it a year ago, you expect that it's going to largely hold its value. It's not like a car that you drive out and there's depreciation. But but be- the bottom line is, I mean, Peloton, they're, they're laying off 20% of their workforce. The business model has kind of hit a brick wall. Why might that be? Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Hi, Mike. What do you think? So I have yet to see a piece of exercise equipment that doesn't fade out. Um, I remember the Universal set. Then it was the Nautilus set. And there's been countless others, you know, Nordic Tracks. Nordic Tracks, yep. They all fall out of favor. And this is no, you know, this is no um, um, change with that. This is no exception. Um, They're expensive. People want to get them because it's the in thing, whether it be kind of like a big screen TV or the newest iPhone, and then they fall out of favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, people get bored with it. The hype runs out, and certainly COVID had something to do with it, but just like the other texter, I believe it would have happened regardless. Yeah, no, thanks for calling, Mike. You know, one of the things that I, I think that you cannot discount is that the, the reason people started buying Peloton. Now, why they were buying Peloton as opposed to other stuff is a different story. But the reason they were buying Peloton is because they couldn't go to the gyms. Now the gyms are open again. And I understand that there might be some people out there who say, okay, I like I like the, the, the convenience of being able to work out at, at home. But I think there's a lot of those people, a lot of people, it, it's just more fun to exercise with groups. You know, we, we are social animals. And I think... You know, we miss being around 
other people. I also think, and I understand Peloton, they've got this this thing where you, you pay the extra whatever it is, 100 bucks or whatever it is a month, and, and you can have like the group workout classes, and I understand that there's like the different instructors, but that's, it's one thing to be doing this on the internet with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people where you're not getting any real interaction with the instructor, and, and it's another thing to be you know going to that exercise class. You're in the spin class or whatever, and you've got the instructor that's there that's something that i just don't think you can duplicate the experience you know you you can have unexperience you know um over the internet but i don't think it matches up that personal experience of going to the exercise class or going to the spin class or you know what whatever and i think one of the big things you're seeing is now that now that the gyms are opening up again, now that the pandemic is winding down, people want to be around, you know, other people. And they're they're voting with their pocketbooks and they're voting with their, their feet. Sandy. Sandy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. I really think that uh, the cause of a lot of this is that people took that stimulus money and <laughs> jumped in impulsively and bought the Peloton, and now they wish they'd <laughs> saved it for the higher gas and food prices, so they're trying to well, that you're trying to, yeah, no, that, no, I, thanks for the cost. You, you could, I mean, look, I, I, obviously, you know, that's, you, you can all decide how you want to spend your stimulus money. And, you know, some people probably used it for like car payments and things alike. And other people maybe used it to buy high end exercise bikes. And I, I don't know how people decided to spend it, but all, all I know is, and I feel at least some degree of vindication because I've been saying for the longest time that th- this was, this was a fad. And I'd have people respectfully call up and say, oh, no, this is the greatest thing in the world, you know. And But the problem is that the pandemic, I think, changed a lot of people's, at least temporarily, a lot of people's buying habits and things like that. And now we're starting to come back to normal. And my guess is if you, you miss that first wave and you really want one of those Peloton bikes, if you don't mind buying a used bike, I think there's probably some good deals out there.